In Session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcast on iTunes. Again, the studio number, 310-441-0555. Before I get started, I want to announce the book of the week again, which I mentioned Monday. It's Oliver Sacks' book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat and Other Clinical Tales. Um, And I've read a portion of it so far, and it's very interesting. He basically shares, I think it's about 20 different case studies of individuals who have different types of uh, deficits or issues, neurological issues, and it is quite fascinating, and he's a very good writer, and you can just tell you're in the presence of a brilliant mind as you read what he's uh, writing about. Um, And so that's, again, Oliver Sacks, the man who mistook his wife for a hat, and other clinical tales. You can also see he has a really nice TED Talk. I had seen it a couple of times, but I watched it again yesterday. So you can check that out. He passed away, I think it was about three years ago. Um, so I'm happy to be reading his book, and I'll be talking about it on the show this coming Monday. Uh, but first, I wanted to start off talking about, talking seriously about something that might not sound serious, and that is play. Um, when we think of the word play, we think of fun and silly, and also there's more connotations to it, even meaning that it's not important, or it's not necessary, or doesn't matter much, or even that it's a waste of time. We think of work as this important thing because it's productive and it's good, and then play is a waste of time and something bad. And I'll talk about even how in adulthood I think this is unfortunate that we think of it this way, but especially I wanted to start off focusing on children. And there is a quote that I was actually looking it up and it's hard to find who originally said it because many people have said it and many people have been given credit for it, but essentially that play is the work of a child. And by that we mean that this is something actually productive for them and necessary for them. And even sometimes we can say this minimizes the significance because it's not just the work as in they're doing something productive, but play actually contributes to the overall emotional development of a child. Play is necessary for a child to become better at emotion regulation, understanding themselves, understanding the world, relationships, a whole bunch of things. So play is so, so important for your kids especially, for adults too, but especially for children. So if you're a parent, I want you to really recognize this because I think sometimes parents, especially nowadays, can get into this mode that children should be learning from a young age. And so play itself is not worth something, but if they're learning alphabet or numbers or words, then it's good. Other than that, it's a waste of time. And this is not the case. Even with infants, you'll see them starting to try to teach them language and words and signs. And it's not so bad for them to learn some of those signs, but it shouldn't be a focus of what they're doing. Play in and of itself, 
a play that we think of as having no purpose itself is very purposeful, very important, and very useful. So if you're a parent, that's something for you to consider. Is my child getting enough time to play? Is my child having enough places or room to play, the appropriate toys to play and explore? And when I say toys, it doesn't mean expensive things. Uh, actually, something like an iPad to me is much worse for your kid than blocks that he or she can play with on the floor. So it's not about the cost. It's about the variety of things um, that they can play, things that they can put together and break apart, uh, dolls with different uh, people, different types of people, ages, even different maybe occupations or types of people, cars, whatever else it might be. And that's for boys and girls, giving them access to lots of different types of toys. And then also um, what's important is how you interact with your child as they play. Now you might think if a kid is playing, well, we can't play as a kid. So we have to either have them play with other kids or just leave them to themselves to play. But it's very important for a parent to play with their kids, to engage with their children when they play. And I'll talk about some uh, techniques or ideas related to that too. But even first as a idea to do it, it can help you in a lot of ways. One, to bond with your child. It can help be a very bonding experience. Also, play in different ways can with your parent can give feelings of self-confidence and self-esteem, uh, feeling good about who you are and what you can do and being productive and being able to come up with ideas. It can be very, very meaningful for them. So as I was saying before, play overall, we shouldn't minimize, but as a parent, interacting with your child during play is very important. Now, I've heard some parents say, well, I mean, it's kids playing. It's a baby playing or a child playing. It's so boring and I don't like doing it. Now, granted, sometimes the repetitiveness, a kid might want to do the same thing 10 times in a row. And by the 10th time, you know, it might not be so exciting for you as much as it is for the child. But hopefully remembering how important it is can give you that motivation to keep going. But overall, playing with a child should be enjoyable for most people if we allow ourselves to make it enjoyable. And by that, I mean, we let ourselves get engaged. So sometimes people have a few blocks that doesn't allow them to engage and connect with their child. One is many people have a hard time connecting with their own playful side, their own silliness, their own fun, their own goofy way of just letting things be. We can be too rigid and feel like I need to be serious and I never want to look silly or goofy or somehow it makes us not an adult or whatever it might be. But some people have a very hard time getting out of that grown-up type of feeling that they have and letting themselves be a kid. And this is not a, a sign of strength. It shows a limitation that you're not able to be flexible in that way. Looking at transactional analysis, we all have a parent, an adult, and a child. We still all have a child within us, that inner child, and we want to be able to tap into that. Even not just in playing with kids, even in our own life, we need to be able to have fun and let go and enjoy things at times and not always feel so rigid and that we have to keep it all together. So we ha we want to be able to tap into that child part of ourself and that's necessary to play with your kid is to get to that place to let go a little bit, to be free. Again, you are the child part of yourself, but still you have your adult active because you're supposed to make sure your child doesn't get hurt or isn't doing anything dangerous or hurtful. You're still responsible. So you still have a bit of the adult active, but you want to tap into that child part of yourself. So if you find that you can't do that, this is not a 
a good thing. Uh, also, some people have a hard time just engaging with their kid. And so they, they, they're playing with their child, but they're on their phone or they're distracted and doing other things. And so when we're talking about actually playing with your child, what I'm talking about is giving them your sustained and undivided attention, fully focusing on them, connecting with them. There are no other distractions. Nothing else is important, just them. And even as I'm saying it, you can hear what the child will experience if you give them that that they are the most important thing, that they're what you're valuing. Not the opposite where I'm going to give you some of my attention, but other things are more important or more pressing or more of a priority than you. And of course, it's not possible 24 hours a day, but we want to make sure you're giving blocks of time to your child, at least where it is undivided attention towards them. Just like we say about with your, your partner, you want to give them that, especially with your child. It is very significant. So we have to, if you find yourself bored playing with your child, you might want to ask yourself why that might be. And don't stay with the conclusion of, well, it's because I'm an adult and he or she is a kid, so it's not fun. You should be able to get engaged with your kid and have fun. Many people who play with kids in a way where they connect with them will tell you that it's very fun. I think it's really enjoyable whether I do it with my kids for uh my friends, kids, or I do it professionally when I'm doing play therapy, it's very engaging and I always get so much out of it myself. So we actually can learn a lot through playing with children if we allow ourselves to experience it. Now, I wanted to talk a bit about different types of play and one in particular. We can talk about child-directed play. And sometimes they say this is important from the ages of two to seven, but you can modify it through adolescence. Uh, but really, it's something that you can do with all kids. And so what does child-directed play mean? It, it might sound self-explanatory in a way it is. When we say child-directed, that means you allow the child to direct the direction of the play or how play is going to happen. What are we playing with? What are we doing? And you try as much as you can to not dictate the play yourself. So that means you... I want to get on the floor, and that's also an important thing. Sometimes parents forget this, that when you're standing up and your child is so little, there is a feeling of intimidation, there is a feeling of not being equal, there isn't a comfort that the child gets. You want to be, if you can, at their eye level. So that means getting on the floor, something that are already some adults might not like doing, but really if you want to engage with your child, you're going to have to do that, get on their level. So you want to be near them on the ground and then let them dictate what's happening. So that means you don't say, do you want to play with this now? Or why don't we do this? Or don't take those out yet. Let's play with this later. Or we're making such a big mess. I know you're probably going to be the one responsible for most of the mess. Maybe the kid helps out a bit, depending on their age. They might do more. But if it's child-directed, that means you have to let go. Again, you're aware of the safety and making sure nothing bad is happening like that. But you let the child dictate what's going to happen. What are we going to play with? And you are more or less joining them. And you can make comments, which actually is good. Things like, oh, you're, you're building such a big tower. And you describe what's going on to a degree. And even this, you have to be aware of. If you do it too much, it could be overwhelming for the child too much. If you're saying every single thing they're doing, just imagine, okay, now you're picking this up. Now you're moving that. Now you put, it's just going to be too much of you. And it's going to make the child actually probably get self-conscious that, you're just describing everything they do, and it can feel like too much pressure. So you make some comments on their play describing what they're doing. And even in your praise, you don't want to praise everything 
that they do, but especially you want to emphasize things about what they are doing as far as their actions, not you are so smart, you build a tower. Oh, you worked really hard to place those pieces one on top of the other and look at that tower. And you let them take the next activity when they want to move on or not. So this can be hard for a lot of parents who think, well, I want to be involved. And by being involved, they do too much. Okay, play with this now. Don't do that. Let's do this. Let's make this. Or they start doing something on their own and say, come here and do this with me. And we think I'm being very engaged and active with the child. And there is times for that type of play too. But we want to make sure we're giving enough space for the child to feel like I get to pick what we do and what I decide actually is right and is smart and is good. Someone else doesn't have to tell me. There's a feeling of self-efficacy, some feeling of I'm the one in control and I can make decisions that we want to make sure we give to our kids. So if you are a parent, maybe you already do this, but make sure you engage in some child-directed play with your kids. And for many people, this can become, it can feel very unnatural because they're so used to being so involved and controlling. And if you notice that, that's something to keep an eye on because that controlling part, if you're doing it even in their play, imagine how you're likely to do it in things that you think are more important, like school and behavior and dress or whatever else you think matters to you. And that's not a good thing and not a good sign. So pay attention to that. Is it hard for me to let my child dictate even play? And if that's the case, where else might I be overly controlling? And another thing that's very beneficial, there are many benefits to child-directed play, but one that can be really important for parents is through play, children can relay to you and express to you many pieces of information about what they're feeling, what they're going through, things they're worried about, fears. And if you get more and more attuned and attentive to what they're doing, they tell you so much. And this is essentially what we do in play therapy is through the play, we recognize that the child is taking you into their emotional world and expressing things they're going through. They unconsciously, of course, they're not really aware of what's going on, but telling you about things they worry about or they're scared of or fears or things, maybe a feeling they want to have that they don't have or things they're experiencing in relationships in the home. So as a parent, when you give your child that space to play and you're with them as they're playing, you'll get to learn a lot about them too. So it's a great way of understanding your child better and letting them express needs, wants, emotions, fears uh, that they might be experiencing, and also sometimes resolve them. So let's say a child has a hard time going to preschool and gets anxious about that. Through the play, they can sometimes reenact things that they're experiencing and feel that they can overcome them through the play, which gives them more confidence to then face the challenges they're, challenges they're experiencing in their real world. So we can see that play is something that we think of as not so important as a uh, trivial thing, as just a fun thing, is so important. And I didn't really get to talk much about it, and I want to get to the commercial break, but it's true for adults too. We don't want to lose sight of the significance of play that we're not supposed to just be productive or think of productive things that make something as the important things. Play and enjoying ourselves and our leisure time is very important too, and we should never forget that. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 310-441-0555. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. 
Hi. Yes, hello. Um, uh, this is Marian. I'm calling from Dallas. Right. Uh, uh, I want to ask you that uh, uh, about four years ago, I was diagnosed with anxiety, depression, and the doctor in uh, Iran uh, prescribed Paxil for me. Okay. So I was on Paxil for four years, and I was um, doing very well on this medication. Uh, till one month ago, suddenly I felt that uh, it's not uh, it's not been working on me anymore, and all of the symptoms that I already uh, felt about four years ago uh, suddenly come back to me. Mm-hmm. And then I uh, went to a clinic, and uh, I asked that it was happened to me. They um, increased the dosage for me but it's not been working mm-hmm. anymore and they told me it's better to switch to another medication I um, they switched me to sertraline and I went uh, I referred to a psychotherapy to a psychotherapist uh, to do CBT therapy and uh, but uh, I felt that um, I don't know exactly I'm a little bit confused that one thing is that, do I have to stay life span on medications for anxiety, depression, or um, I can stay on self-reline and withdraw from it gradually because I really don't want to be dependent on these medications because I was on Paxil for four years. It was very good. It worked, but suddenly it happened that... Uh, like I didn't um, get anything, mm-hmm. and I felt very bad uh, with this medication. Yeah. Um, uh, so there's a lot, you know, there's a lot that you're you're sharing, and I'm I'm going to ask you some more about mm-hmm. the symptoms you're saying, anxiety and depression, and what you're experiencing. Also, if something changed recently that might have led to symptoms coming back. So, anxiety and depression are definitely related issues, and that's why actually to treat anxiety disorders the main medications are antidepressants because the anti-anxiety medications, things like Xanax, are not indicated for long-term use and consistent use because they can be addictive and they because they act so quickly. So we use antidepressants. So you, it's very possible you're dealing with that. Now, when you ask me, am I going to need to be on medication for life? It's definitely not an answer I can give you because just like any kind of medical condition, Sometimes it's more severe, sometimes it's not as severe, and that can determine how long someone needs medication and what kind of treatment they need. But what I can say for you is if you don't want to use medication long-term or that is a concern for you, and even if it wasn't, I would make the same suggestion, that you focus on the therapy and you definitely make that a part of your treatment. Even four years ago, my suggestion would have been you do medication and therapy, not just medication alone. Medication can be very helpful, and for some people it can be enough. So I don't want to say it's never enough. But I would always recommend going to therapy to understand what's going on better and to work on things on a deeper level than just trying to reduce the symptoms and then hope that's enough. Because when we do that, they might come back. They can get triggered. Medication is not something that's going to, even though it's the same medication, it doesn't mean our body is going to respond to it the same way 
for years and years, which is maybe what you experienced. So I would highly recommend that you take the therapy very seriously. Okay. One more thing, doctor. Mm -hmm. I need to know that how long does it take to withdraw from medication? It depends on how um, hard I work on myself and do, because my therapist suggested me to do exercise regularly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, uh, fortunately, he is Iranian. I mean that he's Persian, so the same language that we have, okay. we can uh, have communication to each other very well. Mm-hmm. So I can say everything to her very well okay. and very easily, and that's why I um, just didn't want to know that uh, how long does it take to withdraw from medication? Well, by withdraw, do you mean therapy? Yeah, do you mean? Oh, you mean so with ther- using therapy? How and how long will you not need the medication anymore? Yes, I okay. want to know that how long does it do I have do I need to be with my therapist, psychotherapist, to work on the and uh, I mean to treat anxiety, depression. How many sessions do I need? Oh, how many sessions of therapy? Now, yes. um, again, to any of your questions, it's going to be hard for me to give you a number because I I don't know. Even if I knew everything about you, I still wouldn't say exactly six months. You know, we don't know. Uh, exactly how someone's going to respond to treatment. Mm -hmm. But I would say if it's affecting you considerably, and and we still didn't get into how your anxiety and depression manifests itself for you and in your life, then then as long as it takes is what I would tell you. Keep going. We don't know exactly how long it could take, but even in your question of how many sessions, therapy takes time. So I wouldn't want you to measure it in sessions. Well, I've gone four times. I've gone five times. Measure it more in things like months like i want to go at least six months or eight months so you know looking at a few sessions it's possible sometimes you can maybe in a few sessions get something and cbt can be very directed towards certain thoughts and behaviors and maybe you feel a lot better soon but if you've been dealing with it for years then we want to take that seriously and not just think well I, i want to get rid of this and and especially with something like anxiety and depression they're not things that we erase or eliminate for your whole life, you might deal with depression and anxiety, and you have to be ready for that, meaning that maybe you stop going to treatment, but then in another two years, you'll say, you know what, it might be good to go back in. Or you might get off of medication and realize you want to go back on because some symptoms are coming back. It's not something that it, you're going to get cured of it, and then it never returns. And actually, things like depression, we know that people who suffer a major depressive uh, episode are likely to experience more than one in their life it's likely to come back again. So we, we have to be ready to anticipate that. Maybe that's even what you experienced, that four years ago you were battling some serious depression, and now four years later it's coming back. And we don't exactly know why. And that's why therapy can be helpful to sometimes understand the why better. Why is it coming back? What is it telling me? What's going on? And so that's why I generally am not a fan of just taking medication and not looking at what's going on for the individual. Okay, you mean that uh, I have to, I have to, it's like um, I have to wait for it because it's episodic and maybe the therapy, it will come back to me? Well, it's, you know, here's the thing with, you know, it might, this might not be very encouraging, but you can do everything right and still be depressed. You know, people can take medication, go to therapy, exercise, do meditation, 
And it's mm-hmm. possible, you know, you still say depressed. That's why I can't give you a guarantee. But these things are definitely shown to be helpful for things like depression. And I do want to comment on, you mentioned exercise before, physical exercise. And there are studies that show physical exercise can be as good, if not better, than mm-hmm. uh, medication for things like depression and anxiety. And the great thing about exercise is there is no negative side effect. It's positive physically, it's positive uh, emotionally and psychologically, you know, it's good in all mm-hmm. ways. So definitely I would say if you're concerned about your depression and what you can do to help and you don't want to be so dependent on medication or even you know need therapy, then definitely exercise is a big uh, thing that can help you. Along with meditation, I would also recommend that can help for depression and anxiety. And again, it's one of those things that doesn't have any side effects that are negative. It's really just a good thing. It's like exercise for your brain. So I would consider that as well. Okay. So um, if the CBT therapy, the way that I can eliminate it forever or not? Is CBT therapy something that you could eliminate what forever? Depression, you might um, Like I said, it's hard for me to give, you know, even maybe to, and this is the way a lot of people look at mental illness too. There are definitely ways we want to compare it to medic, uh, medical conditions, but sometimes there's differences or sometimes it depends on the type of medical condition. But depression isn't one of those things that, okay, you're cured, it's, imp- it's never going to come back. You now have the immunity to depression. You can definitely reduce your depression and also do things that make you a lot more, we can almost say resistant to getting very depressed, like Uh the things you learn in your therapy, exercise, meditation, and other things, realizing triggers, realizing problematic relationships or patterns in your life. All those things can be very helpful. But if anyone tells you, I'm going to do something and you'll never feel depressed again, I would take that as someone who's almost trying to sell you something and not really genuine. No real professional medical doctor or psychologist is going to tell you, we're going to do this and you'll never feel depressed again. There just really isn't such a thing. So, Uh and I want you to have that mindset that as difficult as it can be to live with depression and anxiety, it could be something that's always at least there, possibly in the background. You can live a very happy and full life being depressed even for some periods of time. But okay. if to, to think that the goal is that I have to have zero depression or never get down again, that's an unrealistic goal. And I would hope you look at your treatment as an ongoing thing, not something that, well, I've done it, I'm, I'm done with it. It's something that you okay. probably will have to keep an eye on for your whole life to be aware of when symptoms are coming back or how you're feeling, what's going on, and to always be aware that it's, it could, it's in a way a part of you. Okay, yes, thank you. And one more thing. Sure. Uh, do you recommend fluvastamine instead of Paxil because Paxil is not working for me? Well, so I'm, not uh, a, so I'm not a psychiatrist, so I would never tell you to take uh, this medication and not that one. And the uh-huh. thing with what, what also can be frustrating about psychiatric medication is that with some of them, especially things like antidepressants, there's two things that are frustrating. One is to get the positive effects, it takes a few weeks. And unfortunately, uh-huh. you get the side effects before you get the positive effects, which really can be frustrating for people. Uh, and the second uh-huh. thing is that, in a way, we have to guess and check. They're actually doing research, uh, and maybe even some people practice it, where by doing blood tests or different type of tests, they try to determine which antidepressant would be better for which people. I don't yeah. know a lot about it. It's newer research that I know is being done, which I think is very important to do. But at this time, very often, psychiatrists have to do things like 
kind of guess and check. So you try, okay, this one uh, I think could be likely to work for you, but then maybe it doesn't, and then they have to try another one, which can be frustrating, one, because you get the side effects for a few weeks, and you have to wait a few weeks to really even see if there is a positive effect. So it does definitely test your patience, but it does appear the best to be the best that we can do at this time. So I'm definitely not going to tell you don't take this one and take that one. Work with your psychiatrist, let them know what you're feeling, what you're not feeling, and all of that, and help them make that decision for you. Because there isn't really one where I'd say Zoloft is definitely better for you than Paxil, or this one has to be better for you than that one. I don't, I don't know. So work with the psychiatrist and let them guide you through that. Okay, thank you so much. Sure, thank thanks you for your call. Have a great day. You too. All right, going to our next commercial break, studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulakwi. We'll be right back. back studio number three one zero four four one zero five 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 you know the last caller um i'm very thank you for calling and asking your questions because as always people when they call their questions can be things that other people think about or can relate to and i think many people can relate to what our caller was talking about and it made me want to make some comments about some of the issues that were raised in the previous conversation Oftentimes people come to therapy and I've experienced it many times in my office where they basically they say, can you cure me of this, of whatever is ailing them, whatever they're either it's a worry or if it's depression or um, whatever it might be. But this idea of getting cured is very common. And you'll find that most therapists don't use that word cured often. Because when it comes to most psychological issues, cure isn't necessarily the goal or sometimes even realistic. Because, for example, if we look at something like depression, what does cured mean even? Um, Does it mean never being sad at all? Is it just maybe never getting down for a period of time? I'm not even quite sure what that would mean for someone to be cured of depression. Now, to come out of a very serious depression where they're, it's hard for them to get out of bed, they're not being productive, they, let's say, have very low self-esteem, even suicidal thinking or ideation, yes, we could try to get them out of that place. But cured is a hard word to really define when it comes to lots of psychological issues. So very often that's not even the goal or the mindset. Yes, there's goals to get out of the deep depression, to live a more productive life, to feel better and all of those things. But we often don't think of it in terms of disease and cure, but more of treatment and trying to get to a better place. So when we go in with that mindset that I'm going to be cured, sometimes we're missing the whole picture, which is that this might be a part of who you're going to be for a lot of your life. So for example, if someone comes in with very severe anxiety, and let's say generalized anxiety disorder, and they're worrying about everything, and everything seems to cause anxiety for them, they have to probably accept that they're never going to be the most calm person in the world. 
they're always going to have some anxiety unless we so heavily medicate them that they become like a zombie, but that's not the goal or something we want to achieve, but they always are likely going to deal with anxiety. That's going to be a part of who they are. And then not just about them, but we also have to recognize that things like depression and anxiety are in a way parts of being human. So a part of being human is that you will be down sometimes or you will worry or get anxious about things. If you never felt anxiety at all, that would be a problem. Now, I'm not talking about crippling anxiety, but I'm saying any anxiety. And that's why we have to be careful when we're looking at cures or saying, get rid of my anxiety, which is what some people might feel. And you could understand what they're saying because they're so distressed and they're getting so much pain from their anxiety. So you understand when they come to a professional, they want you to remove it. It's very understandable. But in being realistic and understanding the human condition, we have to recognize that we're never going to remove it completely. You don't go to zero anxiety. That's not even the goal. It's kind of like if you went to a doctor and have pain, they might want to remove that specific intense pain that you're having, but they don't turn you into someone who doesn't feel any pain because that actually would be very harmful. It, basically, you'd have to be numbed in this sense maybe given anesthesia to become numb and not feel any pain, but we know that's not actually healthy because as a human being and experiencing yourself in this world, if you don't feel physical pain, you won't know when something is going wrong or when there's a part of your body that needs help. And that's why we even have pain. It's an indication that something is not right, that something is wrong. We need to do something about it. And that's why people who don't experience any physical pain have to actually, and there's a, apparently a, a disease where people have that, and it, it is a disease. It sounds good, right? To never feel pain. Seems like it'd be really nice, but it's actually a disease because it's very concerning because this person could have a, a, something going really wrong in their body, some intense, let's say their knee or their ankle or internally or whatever it might be, and they won't feel it. And so because of that, they have to regularly get monitored and checked in every way because the pain is like a alert system that's now not working so we have to you know, almost do it manually and look at everything um, step by step or piece by piece so pain although it doesn't feel nice that's in definition basically what it's supposed to be it doesn't feel good to alert you that something's wrong but that's why it's so valuable so when it comes to our emotions we should look at what we sometimes consider these quote-unquote negative emotions in the same way that although they don't feel good they're signaling something to us. So if we're feeling down, if we're feeling anxious, if we're feeling angry, these feelings that we generally think of as negative emotions, they are not purely just negative bad things. They could be telling you something very important and we want to listen to that. And I talked about the book on Monday, Emotional Awareness, a conversation between the Dalai Lama and psychologist Paul Ekman, and this idea that any emotion can actually be a beneficial positive thing. Anger can be very beneficial when used in the right way. And even happiness can be negative too. It can cause us to make bad decisions. So looking at an emotion just as good as bad, good and bad or remove it from my life, that really shouldn't even be our goal. And people are doing more studies and sometimes it's hard to make them, I don't want to say scientific, but quantitative. But this idea that even an experience like depression as difficult as it can be, and I'm talking about a, a real deep depression, people will often find that they learn something important through that process. 
And even some people have now argued that maybe that's the purpose of depression for us to have some type of realization or to understand things about ourselves and about life in a better way. So it actually can be beneficial for us. So my goal as a psychologist is never to just remove emotions because I think emotions are telling us something. And that's why I sometimes can have an issue with someone saying, oh, I'm kind of down. Let me just take some antidepressants to get rid of that down feeling. And this reflects the way we look at those quote unquote negative emotions that it's a bad thing. The removal of it is a good thing. And that's it. It's a bad kind of feeling. Any way I can get rid of it is good. And if we use, again, the medical analogy, it's like saying, oh, I have pain in my wherever. Let me just take some painkillers because that, that'll take away the pain. But that's not a sufficient solution and a long-term solution. And we'll miss the very important point of what is that pain telling you? Do you need some kind of treatment? Do you need to change your lifestyle? Do you need to make an adjustment, have surgery, whatever it might be? But if you're just trying to remove the pain because you say pain is bad, we're missing a lot. And so when it comes to us and our emotions, we should have that same perspective. And this is what I think is so valuable about the idea of being more mindful and having a non-judgmental awareness about our emotions is we can listen to it and say, oh, I'm really irritated right now. Why might that be? And try to understand that rather than saying, I'm irritated. That's bad. How can I get rid of it? How can I numb it? How can I just make myself feel good in this moment and escape that feeling? We lose a lot and we also can start to do behaviors that are harmful for us long-term, like drugs, alcohol, um, distraction, food, whatever it might be to numb those feelings that aren't going to be helpful for us long-term. But if we actually listen, we say, oh, I'm irritated. Why might that be? Maybe I didn't sleep well last night. Maybe I have a lot of resentment towards the person I'm actually interacting with right now and that's making me feel so irritable. What might that be? Or I'm sad. What's going on? Most people think if they're sad, it's an emergency to get rid of. How can I get happy? Maybe I can put on some music and dance. Maybe I can drink something or take something or whatever it might be to get away from that sad feeling. And I'm not suggesting to just dwell on the sadness and only feel sad, but it's important to listen to that. Why might I be sad? What am I feeling right now? And not miss that important information that we're getting. So when we look at psychological and psychiatric treatment, I'm very much in favor of it. But a big part of it for me isn't just removal of negative feelings. It's also understanding ourselves better. And as I always say, the main goal of therapy to me is self-awareness rather than just removing negative things, painful things, or quote unquote, fixing us. It's more about self-awareness than anything else. Understanding, wow, I'm really feeling down. Why might that be? Maybe even it's a bad relationship that if I don't look at carefully will continue to hurt me. But if I let myself feel the pain, I'll see that it's not right. I'll see that it's wrong and make a decision to either make the relationship different or leave the relationship. Whatever that decision might be, without that information that my emotions can give me, I'll be missing a lot. So that's something to just consider when you're going to, when you think about treatment, when you think about helping yourself, that be ready that it's not just about removing something. It's about trying to understand what's gotten you to this place to begin with and to be ready for that experience in therapy. Now, that being said, related to what the caller was talking about, there's lots of things you can do to promote your mental health. Just like if you're sick, you go see a doctor, and that's kind of what we think we do. But at the same time, doctors tell us about things we can do to promote our health overall, things like exercise, 
eating well, um, even social relationships and lack, not having loneliness, that's actually loneliness is being found to be a big cause of even medical issues. But they'll tell you things you can do to promote your physical health too, not just come to the doctor when you're sick. And the same is true when it comes to mental health, that we can do things, yes, go see a therapist, medication when you're not feeling well, but we can do things to make ourselves feel better. And interestingly enough, and this again shows the connection we have between the physical and the psychological or the, the medical and the mental, we see that a lot of things that are good for us medically are good for you psychologically too. So exercise is wonderful for your mental health and can be as good as an antidepressant to treat depression, sometimes even better. Meditation is very good for your mental health and even it can have physical benefits too to your, to your health. Social support and connections, relationships, we know is one of the biggest indicators of long-term happiness. So having those good relationships is going to help you feel good overall. Also, when we have better social support, that means we have more people and uh, pe relationships to rely on when we're not feeling well to get that support as well. So it's not just about getting treatment, but it's also what we can do to promote our own mental health on a daily basis. And oftentimes we don't consider that. What can I do? And to take another analogy, I like to compare the mental and the dental. When you go to the dentist, you get a six-month checkup, which is good, but then you don't just wait to see them again in six months or wait till your teeth hurt. We all know that every day we should floss and brush our teeth and do those things to promote our dental health. But when it comes to something like our mental health, we don't think we should be doing the same things. So you spend a few minutes in daytime and nighttime on your teeth, which is great. So I'm not saying stop doing that, but our brain and our emotions and our mind, something very important, we tend to almost spend zero time on. Most of us don't do anything for that. So a few minutes of meditation might seem like you don't have time for it, but hopefully it's something that you can do. And even five minutes can be enough. Or even physical exercise, thankfully, is good for both physical and mental. So you can incorporate that into your day. So to look at our mental health in a different way, that's something that I always try to do with this show is to remind people that we have to take it seriously. We have to be aware of what we're doing that's hurting our mental health. We have to be willing to talk about issues as they come up and not ignore them or deny them. We also must be willing to get help when we need help and not be afraid to see a therapist or see a psychiatrist and to work on that. And we should do things to promote our mental health every day because there are things that we can do. Um, you know, The Upward Spiral is a great book that looks at things that we can do to treat depression or treat our own depression one small step at a time. And we can do lots of little things every day to make ourselves feel better. So I'm glad that we had that call because a lot of what she expressed to me is the ways that most people, we all think about mental illness and mental health, that it's something that, well, I don't feel good. I want to go somewhere and have that taken away rather than recognizing that our mental health is a lifelong process that we need to work on every day and take it seriously every single day to make sure it gets the attention that it needs. And when we need extra help, absolutely be willing to go into the professionals to get that. But um, I'm glad she called, and I always appreciate callers for sharing their stories because I know we all can relate to them in different ways. All right, going into our next commercial break, studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. Studio number 310-441-0555. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hi. Hello. Are you talking to me? Yes, I am. Thanks for calling. Uh, thank you for your good program. We really oh, enjoy uh, listening to your program thank every you. Wednesday. Thank you. Uh, my question is about my uh, my daughter. Uh, she is uh, five years old, and she is uh, almost five years old, and she is the only kid. Okay. And uh, mm, she's supposed to go to kindergarten this coming September. Mm-hmm. Me and her dad uh, decided to go to public school close to our uh, house. Um, but uh, recently she asked us sending her to French school, uh, which is private. Um, to you say offer, French? Uh, French, yeah. Okay. Are you guys in a city with a, a strong French population? or? No, no. Okay. Uh, we have um, Canadian citizenship. Okay. But um, we don't know. None of us um, talk in French or okay. can understand French very well. But um, three of her friends, um, which are boys and older than her, going to data school, and she um, interested uh, watching uh, TV in you know cartoon in French, and she pretends that um, she's talking in French very much. She <laughs> she babbles uh, in a uh, French pronunciation very much, <laughs> and uh, her father, mostly her father, attempts to. Uh, you know, uh, considered uh, this option as well, the French uh, private school, uh, because he has two reasons. Um, First, uh, the number of uh, students in the class is low, just 15 kids, uh, two teachers. And also we have uh, Canadian citizenship, and in future going to French college would be easier and cheaper. Uh, so we thought that maybe it's a kind of investment for us uh, and for her, uh, learning English, um, French besides uh, English and Persian. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's a really yeah, it's, we are confused because she uh, we focus on Persian very much. Uh, we just talk in uh, Persian at at home, and um, she she can read in Persian. Uh, but no English, just uh, she can talk in English, but no reading and writing in English. Uh, and uh, it's our big question is that it would be too much for her, uh, bringing third language to her world hmm. or not. Well, first of all, the idea of a five-year-old or almost five-year-old babble, trying to talk in French sounds adorable. I know that's not necessarily related to your question, but just thinking of that sounded very cute. But um, I can understand your your thinking, and it's it's we should definitely think about it seriously, but also recognize that it's not going to be the biggest decision. And by that, I mean even the idea that because she has Canadian citizenship and the French school, it, it's very possible she decides to go for a short period of time and doesn't pursue it. And I don't want you guys to feel or put any kind of pressure on her that, well, there was some plan that you learn French because potentially in 13 years it'll be easier for you to go to a particular school or college. So I wouldn't make that too much almost at, at all a part of the decision, if in my opinion, because we don't know what's going to happen. So many things can happen from now and then, and maybe she goes to the school and doesn't like it, and I wouldn't want for any reason for her to feel pressure to continue because maybe in the long run it's cheaper. And plus, is the French school a private school? 
Yeah, it is okay. private. My yeah. guess is the amount of money you'll pay in 12, 13 years of private school will cost more than college if you went to public school. So I don't know if it financially makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Does right. that make sense? But Yes, yeah. But, um, you know, we are thinking about just uh, the first five years, um, you know, just elementary school mm-hmm. and sending back for middle school and high school and um, English, uh, okay. you know, the English school. Okay. So, well, what do you think? so one thing for me is always, of course, we don't want to, Sometimes a kid might want something and we have to let them know it's not the best decision. But I want the, the child to always be involved in the decision making to some degree. So even when you're saying... Even inf- at this age? Even at this age to a degree. I'm not saying she makes the fi- only decision because, you know, if it was up to her, she would probably stay up as late as she wanted. And whatever it is she would want to do, we have to make the decisions for her and give her that boundary. But I want to make sure she's involved with it. By that, I mean she doesn't make it, but she, you do hear what she has to say. And especially as she gets older, because you're saying, well, our plan is at sixth grade, do this, ninth grade, do that. But at that point, she's going to have much more to say, and we want to listen to it even more. That if she says, well, all my friends are here, or I'd be happier here, that, that to me is going to be the biggest decision maker, the biggest factor in making that decision. Um, one issue I have with when people go to, if it's a French school, if it's even, a let's say, a Persian school or a religious school, is sometimes the focus becomes too much on that thing, whatever it is. So what is the difference between, let's say, the public school and the French school? Not about the number of kids, but about the education. French school, this private school, focus more academia, which makes me a little bit worried. They are the kids over there. They are very good at writing, reading, writing, and their handwriting. They focus focus on handwriting very much, which uh, makes me to worried. Uh, say no to that school, but my husband like it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but in public school, they don't focus on academia, at least in elementary school, that much. They, they, they focus on their behavior and play. Everything is play-based. Mm-hmm. But in uh, this French school, it, it's not, um, it's bilingual, it's French and English. Um, I forgot to say that. Mm-hmm. It's not pure French. They teach them... Um, well, yeah, pure uh, French, I would think, would be a really bad idea. If it, was, if it was pure French, that would be, you know, she needs to learn... English, English, obviously. Yeah. Uh, okay, uh, you know, again, the, I, I'm. It's interesting to hear your perspective because I didn't know you were going to say that that you're concerned about how focused it is on academics. So you're worried it's too much pressure or it's too much focus there. Uh, yeah, too much focus. I, I don't see, you know, because um, our family friends um, are going there. You know, um, the kids, the three kids going there. They are our family friends and talk to their parents as well. They don't show me any pressure. But I can see that, um, you know, the way that they write, the way that they read, they are very advanced in in comparison with their, um, you know, the public school. Mm -hmm. So it means that they focus too much on academia. But I I don't know. Well, not necessarily. (laughs) I I get where you're coming from, but not necessarily. Uh, I do agree with you that I don't think it's good that we put too much pressure on kids to achieve certain things at a young age that puts too much pressure on them and doesn't emphasize the importance of their emotional and social development, which we know long-term is going to be more important than their academic development. That's true. So yeah, I'm with true. you on that and that play, at, especially at her age, she's not even five yet and going to kindergarten, play is much more important than academics for a kindergartner. I don't think too much about the academics. The more it's about play and even learning through the play, that's going to be better for them. 
Uh, so it seems like there's a split because your husband, the academic part, he likes. He wants to her to go somewhere more academic, whereas you're concerned about that. No, yes, yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, it's our, um, you know, our difference is that uh, he likes the academic part, but um, I, I, I like more the um, lower percentage of um, kids, you know, in, you know, kids and uh, teacher that are lower. But in yeah. in public school, in this public school that we belong to, it's 26 kids. Uh, and one teacher, and maybe uh, assistant will be there or not. But here is just fifteen mm-hmm. students with two two teachers. I see. Okay. Another thing you might have to be ready for is that, although at her age she can learn multiple languages much easier than we can in adulthood, it's very possible she emphasizes on the, emphasizes on the French and also the English. Farsi will become a lot less significant for her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, we know that part. Yes. Yeah, which I... We are ready for that Okay, part. and you could be... I know, to me, that's not so significant. I just want you to be aware, because it seemed like you're saying that... It seems important to you guys that you're saying you're only speaking Farsi in home, um, but that's something to be ready for, that it, it's possible that would happen. Overall, I, I'm... You know, a lot of people, I think they prefer private schools, and they think they're definitely always better. I don't always feel that way, and I think mm-hmm. they can we make it too big of a deal that because it's private, it somehow has to be better than a public school. So I'm very okay with that. The thing that for me is very important is that you and your husband come to an agreement where you both are very okay with the decision because then when she starts school and if there's challenges or issues, I don't want it to feel like a, you know, see, I told you so from either one of you that this was right or that was right. You guys have to be on the same page about Mm -hmm. that. And so you're saying your daughter herself, she's saying she wants to go to the French school. Watching French cartoon, yes, yes, she is saying that I want to be classmate with my friends, but they are older than her. Okay, so you these know, are family one, friends. Yes, they are family friends. Okay. Yeah, is that how uh, she even got exposed to the French culture, like this, like the French cartoons and things? Yeah, she she likes. Um, she prefers to see the cartoons translated in French okay. <laughs> and. French, uh, and she always says that I know French. French is one of the languages that I know very well. Uh-huh. Even <laughs> so though she doesn't. <laughs> yeah. Okay, then. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. Yeah, that sounds very cute. Uh, but, you know, what the thing is, you're right. She probably won't see those kids very often that she's talking about if they're in older grades. Yeah. Okay. So have you made, have you talked to her about that? Have you told her that you probably won't see them so much? I'm sure maybe at recess and things, but she won't be in class with them. Uh, pardon, what, what did you ask me? Sorry, I didn't. Did you talk to her about how she won't actually be with those kids in her class, the ones that she knows? No, I, I didn't talk about that part, no. Um, but she's she's very good in learning language. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she, she started talking very, very soon, at 10 months, something like that. Mm-hmm. And she babbled when she <laughs> started, uh, you know, when she was three months, four months. Um, I, I think she's very good in learning languages. Well, let's um, she, yeah. she talks in, fr- in, mm-hmm. in Farsi and English very well. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And, uh, that, that, yeah, that I think is not a concern for me so much, the language part. I think the... I don't know if the bilingual is going to be better for her or worse. I feel like it's always... It, learning French might not be so beneficial. Learning a language sounds good, but maybe she misses out on learning other things because of that. Um, as I was saying before, sometimes you go to a school, the focus becomes too much on 
whatever it is, if it's a religious school or a cultural school, and I think actually it can be a negative thing rather than a positive thing. It doesn't really add as much. Uh, I, I don't want to tell you to pick one school or the other because I, I'm not going to make that choice for you guys. But I think it's definitely something for you and your husband to talk about. As I mentioned, the saving money for college later on to me doesn't seem like something I would put too much weight on because there's mm -hmm. so many factors about that. First of all, how much she learns French. Does she even want to go to that kind of school? And we're talking about 13, 14 years from now, what she yeah. wants to do. So I wouldn't put too much weight in that the the um child the class sizes that that can be important to a degree but you know it's it depends on the difference and for how long it's going to be that way but yeah. I, and i mentioned the language issue that it's possible farsi will be put way on the back burner if she's also learning french because especially she's going to want to it's a new language she's going to want to focus on that so she might not want to talk farsi anymore because she's learning this new one so yeah. you know and she's so young and and to her it seems like it's just this excitement of being in a school with those friends and there's some appeal she has to french right now even it could be just like an obsession that she's going through actually let me ask you that how long has she been into the french cartoons and french language um recently very much i think um but i mean maybe, has it been uh, a, a couple months or has it been since she was like two how no, it's a couple months. Okay. No, it's, uh, it's maybe in six months, every week, I can say that, two hours watching French cartoon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it does seem, it sounds like an interesting way that it came about. Um, another thing to keep in mind, it, kind of unrelated, but I'm not, have you guys thought about having another child? No, no. Okay. She will be the only child. Yeah. Okay. What's, you seem very set on that. What's the reason for that? Um, we try and we couldn't, and now I pass for D, and I okay. think it's not healthy. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So <laughs> it it's couldn't more... happen. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So that's something you know. I just wanted to ask about that earlier on, and I'd forgotten to mention. Okay. Um, yeah. So I think the decision. To me, also, like I said, we take it seriously, but we don't want to get parents, even with like preschools or daycares, I see them, you know, going crazy trying to make this decision about what's the the right place and. And they put so much pressure on the decision that it can really drive them crazy. We don't want to make it too big of a deal because if it stresses you guys out, it's going to stress her out and put pressure on her when she starts school. So we want to make sure you guys talk about it. You make a decision and then you, you kind of just stick to it and, and see what happens. But it doesn't seem to me, I don't see any indication that either one of them is going to be detrimental severely. I, yeah. And I think as long as you and your husband and she's on the same page, you guys will be okay. You know, I, the thing, the reason I was asking how long she's liked it is, you know, let's say a kid for a week gets obsessed with something. And if you ask them if you want to go to that kind of school, they're going to say yes, but it's a short obsession. And then we don't want to make a big decision exactly. based on that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you kind of play it by ear. I would talk to her about, you know, those kids won't be in your classes just so you know. She might still want to go anyway and look at the school, go see if you think it makes sense. Of course, also financially for you guys. Like I said, I wouldn't think too much that in 14 years it might save you guys some money because there's so many things to figure out by then. Um, but just hoping you and your husband can come to agreement and that you both, it's our decision now. It's not his decision or your decision, depending on where she goes. It's our decision as a family. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah makes sense. Yeah. Um, and I have another question if uh, I have time. Sure. Is it unrelated to what we were talking about? Related and unrelated. Okay, what is it about? Because we might talk about it after the break, depending on what it is. What's the question? Yeah, it's uh, um, D 
during the tour that we had in French school, mm-hmm. she started talking in French, bonjour, I don't know, mm-hmm. something like that, very cute. Yeah. And people, yeah, and people who were there for tour, they laugh at her, you know, because she was too cute. Mm-hmm. And she... <laughs> She grabbed her um, face and her ears, and she was crying at me that why they are laughing at me like that. And she was very disappointed and very scared. I don't know. Um, I want to know that I, as a mom, how I should... uh, interacted this kind of things you know yeah. well maybe my daughter yeah let's talk about that after the break because i want you know i want to talk to you more about what she experienced also what other things might be going on not just related to that so just hang online let's talk after the break okay sure All sure right. thank you sure you're listening to in session with dr fatty delock we will be right back Welcome back. Let's go to the caller we were with before the break. Caller, are you still there? Yes, okay. I'm here. I was secretly hoping your daughter was going to pick up and start speaking to me in French, but um, yeah. I guess I didn't get lucky. I was hoping to hear how she does the accent, but we won't get to hear that this time. But you were talking before the break about how she was talking in French when you guys were doing the tour of the school, and because it was so cute, people were laughing, and then she appeared to get very embarrassed. Right? Yes, yeah, that's true. Okay. And it happens in other occasions as well. Sometimes that she says something cute when we laugh with her. Um, she doesn't like it. And yeah. um, sometimes uh, her reaction is not, you know, it's too much, you know. Uh, what do you mean her reaction is too much? It's, uh, you know, I told you that she uh, cover her face and um, come to me and uh, hug me and say that why you're... Mm laughing at me you know yeah. i didn't say you know i just answered the question you know because mm-hmm. the person who had tour um asked some question and she she answered it in french and uh, it was true and there is there's nothing wrong and um everything was was good but because it was too cute everybody laughed mm-hmm. and so she didn't like it yeah now so if we're talking about other people we can't control their reactions. But something about what you said, the reason why I stopped you or I, I asked the question, you said her reactions are too much. Um, and my guess is you're meaning that she gets very upset or she gets very hurt and you, you don't want her to feel that way or to you it seems like it's too much. But we would want to make sure we're not giving her that feeling that your emotions are too much or if you got embarrassed, you shouldn't get embarrassed or you shouldn't feel this way. That's why I, I wanted to emphasize that point of her reactions are too much. So this is true with our kids of whatever it is they're going through emotionally. We want to do our best to validate and empathize with them of what they're going through and not make them feel like, oh, you shouldn't be sad or mad or whatever it is they're feeling. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yes, yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. But, um, you know, uh, because the um, situation was very, um, I don't know how I should say in English, but... Um, somebody asked question and she answered the question correctly and right. Mm-hmm. And um, she was kind of surprised. Uh, I, I didn't do something funny while you are, we are, you are <laughs> laughing, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, you and, could tell her we were just so surprised at how you answered it so well. 
and how you, you gave the answer. So you want to give her that feeling. But so again, I just say emphasize that you want to make sure she doesn't feel that way. And, it, you know, the strangers, that's one thing. But let's say you and her father, we want to make sure she doesn't feel like you're laughing at her. And this is tough sometimes for parents because, yeah, your kids can just be so cute. Like I was even saying, imagining her talking in French sounds very cute. But when she's trying to be serious or she's trying to do something new or try something, we have to try our best to be aware of our response and how she's going to feel about that. Because if we're laughing and she doesn't like it, we can't say, oh, we're laughing and having a good time because to her it feels like we're laughing at her not laughing yeah. with her. Now she comes and tells That's you a joke, true. mom, knock, knock, blah, blah, and then you crack up. She's going to love it because she's trying to make you laugh. But if you laugh at her, we wouldn't like that either if we were trying something new and people started cracking up. So we want to be aware of what she experiences when you're doing that. She's trying something new. She's trying something on and the reaction isn't, it doesn't feel very good. Now, the thing, good thing is with school and other places she's going to get exposure to other people that might actually help her with these things and this is another reason why having a sibling can be helpful because they have interactions with kids their age and that can teach them some things about social socializing and, and social customs and things and how people react but we could also be dealing with something there where she doesn't have a lot of practice there and also in just talking to you i get the feeling that you are fairly anxious w would that be fair yeah. So, and she likely has anxiety that? too. So she might be an anxious and in, in a way, although she's being so funny and trying these things on, she might be a shy child inside. And so when she does, does these things and gets that reaction, it really hurts her in a deep way. Mm -hmm. She's not shy. Okay. She, yeah, she doesn't look shy to me that much, uh, but... Uh, in some situations, she doesn't feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. um, you know, at that that time, what I, I told her that, okay, um, it seems that you look sad and you didn't like that uh, people laugh at you. But uh, because the way that you say that it was too cute, they, they laugh. It was because it was cute. But I wasn't sure that my reaction was correct or not. Well, I mean, I, you were trying to comfort her, which is, is good. But sometimes for a kid, if we keep telling them how cute they are, it makes them feel little. It emphasizes the littleness or that you're just, uh, oh, it's it kind of it's dismissing in a way, too. So I get what you're saying was a nice thing. You weren't trying to say something mean and it wasn't. But if we make it too much that it's because you're so cute when they're trying something, then, you know, imagine if you were trying to do something hard and someone said, oh, that was so cute. And you're like, well, I was trying my best to do something good. And cute is a very minimizing and dismissing thing. That's so, true, yeah. So although we think of cute as a nice thing to tell a kid they're so cute, you know, that's a positive. When a child is trying on a new skill or a new thing or trying to do something, especially in public, and then we tell them they're just being cute, it does have that dismissive undermining quality to it. So, and that's what I mean. Like even you're with your kid and sometimes they're home and they're like, I'm going to sing you something and they want it to be really good, but it's so cute and funny. You might want to burst laughing, but you don't want to laugh because they're going to feel like you're laughing at them. So you have to try your best. And you know, you see parents doing this all the time, keeping a straight face when really they want to crack up at something cute their kid is doing because they don't want to make their kid feel like they're undermining them or making fun of them or laughing at them. And so we have to be aware of that. That's why I said at home, I really want you and her dad to be aware of that feeling and don't give her that feeling of she's trying to do something serious and you laugh at her because that's not going to feel good. I think what you said was nice. It happened a lot. <laughs> Does it happen a lot? Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. 
Yeah, it's um, we are we are trying, we are practicing, not laughing with her, yeah. but um, <laughs> we are trying our best. But sometimes it's it's very sure. I'm it. sure. Sometimes it's hard because it's so cute, and also sometimes. <laughs> even with adults, but especially with kids, we don't really know what they're looking for. So you might think she's trying to joke with you, but she might be serious, you know? So she says something and you think it's in a goofy way. So you laugh, but she's like, no, I was trying to say something serious or whatever. So you're going to get it wrong sometimes. And that's, that's okay. But we want to try our best with our own reactions, especially, you know, we, we make them feel that what they're saying is important, is serious and that we value what they're saying. But, you know, that word cute can be a, uh, a word that sounds very positive, but people can take in not the best way. So with this one, you know, in public especially, you can also, again, empathize, empath- uh, empathize with her that I get that that didn't feel good. You were saying that, and actually you said, you can even emphasize that she said the right thing. You know, actually you made the right answer, and I was so impressed that you were able to say it in French. And even, uh, you could say, it, and part of it probably was this, I think everyone was surprised that you were able to say the answer that way so it mm-hmm. made them have a reaction you surprised everyone with how good you said that you know so it's emphasizing her strength rather than a smallness in a way that's true yeah yeah that makes sense yeah okay. thank you very much sure sure thanks for your call nice talking to you and yeah you're, you're the 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 french sounds adorable so like i even em- was saying it myself it sounded cute and i can imagine myself wanting to laugh if she was saying something <laughs> in french but good luck with that and the decision that you guys make yeah, thank you for your time. Sure, thank you. Thank very you. Much. Okay, have a bye bye. You too. Bye bye. You know, just a few uh, comments on that because I've brought this up before, uh, and it's also true with adults that people will sometimes say, "Well, we're just joking," or we'll have a nickname for someone that we think is cute, or we'll joke with them in a certain way, and if we think that we're joking, that it's okay. But a joke always has to go both ways. I think it's funny and you think it's funny or I enjoy it and you enjoy it. But if I enjoy it and you feel hurt, then it's no longer a joke. And we can't just use that excuse of because it's a joke, because we're being humorous, because we're trying to have fun, everything is okay. And especially this is true when it comes to our kids where we want to make sure that what they're saying and what they feel matters, but it doesn't stop even with adults. Um, And this doesn't seem to at all be the case with these parents. So it's definitely switching gears a bit or looking at a different aspect of this. But I've mentioned before how oftentimes we'll use humor as a way of expressing some negative feeling we have towards someone, but doing it in this way that feels safer or that is a veil to cover what we're actually trying to do, which is express anger. So people will oftentimes make fun of someone that they have a lot of resentment or anger towards, but for various reasons feel like they can't express directly. And they use humor as that way. So if you're making fun of someone and they keep not liking it and saying, hey, I don't like that. Or if you're getting made fun of by someone and when you tell them to stop, they don't. Recognize that although humor seems like this fun, playful thing, it can oftentimes be a defense and a way to express anger or resentment towards someone in a way that seems either more socially acceptable um, sometimes also people themselves feel like they don't want to ever ever get angry or express anger, but here in humor they can express it. But there could be a lot that they're telling us through the jokes. So if a joke doesn't feel like a joke both ways, it's no longer fun and humorous, and we have to accept that. And I see this in couples a lot of times too. They'll have nicknames for each other and they think it's funny or they'll make jokes either that the person doesn't like or the timing 
they don't like. Of course, we know humor can also be a way for someone to get out of an uncomfortable situation. So they don't like the conversation or the way it's making them feel, or they want to change the subject or get away from it. And they'll make a joke and just say, hey, I'm just being funny. But maybe it's because they don't want to talk about that. So jokes should always go both ways, no matter what the age of both parties are. All right, going into our last commercial break, studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Yes, I am. How are you? Good, thank you. How are you? I am doing just fine. Thank Good. you, doctor. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, my question is, what do you think about uh, the forum landmark or landmark mm-hmm. forum? Um, these are intensive, uh, uh, I would say, sessions about, uh, you know, insight into, finding insight into mm-hmm. your life and uh, whatnot. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about these uh, this program? It's, sure. it's so popular among people. Mm-hmm. They have such a strong, um, uh, I I would say, advertisement for getting into the program, getting into the program to the point where I would say they are so pushy that you wonder uh, what is it all about mm-hmm. that they are so overzealous about uh, getting people into the program. Sure. Uh, so, yeah. So I want, yeah, and I want to make sure we don't, you know, my goal is never to, because I can see you have some maybe negative thoughts about them and I'll share some of my feelings overall, but to attack any person or group or anything is not really something my goal ever is, but I'll, I'll share my thoughts on uh, what you talked about. So I'll mention, and it's not going to be a, the best description of it, but Landmark Forum and other types of classes like that, their aim tends to be about transforming people and their lives, helping them um, overcome whatever issues are getting in the way of their own personal development or success or happiness. And they do it oftentimes, as you mentioned, there's some intense training sessions or sessions that might be five days or three days, um, either half days or full days and even longer sessions too, where they do a lot of experiential type things of trying to help you work through past issues, or let's say issues with your parents or with an ex or whatever it might be. Um, And they have various techniques and also things they teach you on how to, to work on yourself and whatnot. I did a course like Landmark. I think Landmark Form is one of the more popular ones or well-known ones. I did one similar to it like eight years ago uh, and I got to see what it was like and there's lots of other ones like that. So what I'll definitely say is I don't want to say it's definitely not like there's nothing good in them because you can learn a lot from them and many people have gotten beneficial things that they've learned from classes like that. So I don't want to say don't do them at all, because I know even people listening maybe have taken these types of courses and got a lot out of them. I do have some issues with some of the ways they do things or the claims they might make, because uh, when they're trying to, you talked about how they might advertise or sell things, um, they often will make it seem that if you come to a five-day course, 
all your problems get fixed or your life will completely be changed forever. And that to me is not realistic and it's not something that I think you should ever tell people because I don't think it is realistic to make some kind of lasting change like that. Is it possible in some very, very few, few cases? Maybe there can be some some huge change that someone makes, but usually big changes will take some time. And that's the I'm a firm believer of that, that to make change takes time. And so the experience many people have in these types of uh, trainings is they'll break you down at the beginning and make you feel very bad about yourself in a way and make you feel down. And then by the last few days, put you in a high where you feel really good about yourself and feel like you can do anything and that anything that was bothering you before never will bother you again. But it does have the feeling more of a high, meaning that one, it's not so genuine and two, it doesn't seem to last. So it wears off and people usually are dealing with a lot of the issues they're still dealing with. The course that I did, um, I did three different segments or three different parts of it. There was like a beginner one, a middle one, and then the last one was like for a few months where you would meet on a weekly basis and have regular phone calls and all that. What I observed was that most people by the end of the whole thing were still dealing with the same issues they were dealing with at the beginning, which doesn't mean it's not helpful at all, but the idea that we're just going to fix whatever problem you have, it's going to disappear doesn't seem to be what I observed and what I think is realistic. So people tend to be dealing with the same things. They can work through them, but to think it's just going to change so quickly is not realistic. Another issue that I have with the way they tend to run their organizations is um, they're, although they're trying to teach people things which can be very good, there often isn't a feeling that you can disagree with them. And this is why some people will say, They'll even talk about these things like landmark, like it's a cult. And I wouldn't say it's a cult because, you know, that's kind of extreme, but definitely has some tendencies that I can understand why it makes people say that specifically things like you can't challenge the, the kind of the leaders or the people who are running things very easily. If you do, you tend to get put down or challenged, or even they'll make it seem that, well, if you have something wrong, you're saying about this how else does that show up in your life? Meaning that where else do you not trust people or where else do you have these issues? Which, yeah, that can be true, but also can be that someone is disagreeing with something specific that they have the right to disagree with, but it doesn't create that space. So in that way, you can have a feeling like a a religion and that way, like a cult where there's no space for disagreement or actually uh, having a discourse and you can't really voice your opinion. And so in that way, it does create that that feeling too, which I don't think is good. Um, so as I mentioned, I, I would say it's not something that I would not recommend anyone to do, but I think I wouldn't want anyone to get too sucked into it, just like anything. Becoming a fanatic of anything is going to be a problem. And sometimes the culture around these types of courses are built in to try to suck you in and make you a fanatic of what they do. And that I think is dangerous and people sometimes are susceptible to that and they have to be aware that they can get sucked in. Even when I was in it, I felt that I would get sucked into it uh, too. I remember that feeling. And when I look back at what I thought or how I was viewing things, it was very much um, affected by what they were saying and, and everything revolved around the course and getting people to sign up for the course becomes the focus after a while and it just when I look back it didn't feel good it really wasn't a genuine feeling that I was 
they were just seeking to help me and the people in the group it was more focused on the organization and, and so i didn't like that part of the experience so i shared some of my thoughts i don't know if there's any specific question or thought you had that you wanted to share and like i said i don't want to maybe even seem like i was attacking at times i hope i wasn't but i was just sharing my thoughts and i don't want to make our conversation revolve around that or be that but is there anything any other questions yeah. you had thank you very much for that i um I am actually uh, a believer, uh, as, uh, as you said, that we need to be very careful with these organizations, even though they can help you, but um, there are issues that um, I myself experienced with uh, uh, two sessions that I went there for someone who was graduating. Mm -hmm. and. They were haunting. They were trying so hard to pull me into the program. Mm -hmm. And uh, first, uh, they, they didn't succeed in the first one. The second one, my son went there, and he um, was graduating last night. So I went there. He asked me to go with him. So I went with him, and the guy was so um, pushy, he got into my face. And he said, if you trust your son, you need to come and do this program. I said, wait a second. You are using my son to get me to sign up for the program? That is not right at all. I do not like your, uh, your sales pitch. Mm -hmm. So the guy said, you don't understand. I mean that you love him, you care for him, he wants you to be here, and uh, I think you need to be here to help him. Um, so that conversation ended in, in this uh, mm -hmm. breakdown and breakthrough that when we got out of there, my son told me, Mom, uh, can I be honest with you? I said, that's the whole thing. We, we have always been honest with each other. He said, I felt very sad when you confronted this guy. You didn't have to do this. This is a nice guy. He, he's an excellent person, this program. Um, he was just doing his job and this and that. I said, I understand what you're saying. And he said to me, Mom, I was very sad. I said, wait a second. The fact that I was expressing myself and confronting this gentleman, um, if it made you sad, uh, you need to realize that this is a breakdown for you and you need to learn from that. And to learn from that is you're, you're your own person. You cannot be sad as your mom's doing. I was doing this because I learned to be my own person and stand up for what I believe. And I think this program ultimately is there to be uh, to be of help to you guys to open the blockages you guys have or i have or we all have so you must be very happy to see your mother standing up for something that she believes mm -hmm. i might be wrong but if i am wrong tell me why am i wrong and he said to me mom the reason i believe that you know i i was sad is because i thought you should have handled it in, in a very quiet way and uh, said nothing and just, uh, you know, let him do his job, and that was his job. So I said, when I thought about it, I said, well, that's another way to look at it, and I agree with you on that. 
I should have, but it's a it's a lot of things it's a cultural yeah thing for well me. I, yeah but i mean i think you know it was good that you guys had that conversation you both got to express what you feel and i think if i agree with you it was good that you said you know how i want to handle it is how i want to handle it and you should give me that space but i also think what he said made sense that it's possible you could have handled it in a less confrontational way that would have been better for even you you would have felt less feelings that were hurtful for yourself and for your son and overall. So, you know, you guys had a conversation and a back and forth and that's, that's good. And I'm glad you guys can have that open communication. One thing I'll also say is, you know, there's no one thing that's going to help everyone. And I think that's another thing that sometimes you can feel in these classes. And from their perspective, if we even try to give them the benefit of the doubt, if you found something that you thought was very helpful you would want other people to have that help, the people especially that you care about, so that they go through that too. And even that's why I think it also can sound similar to a religion, because it could be that same thing that because I found this great thing, this religion, this you know, connection to God, I want other people to experience it, so I need to share it with everyone. But the way the pushiness I think that you experienced is something that can turn people off or that they don't like. Uh, and for me, it's very important for everyone listening. And I was talking actually before with someone who was talking about medication and therapy. And anytime for me, someone comes to you and says, I'm going to fix all your problems quickly, or I'm going to solve every issue you have, or this class is going to fix this or fix that. It should sound fishy to anyone. And we should take that skeptically. Now, unfortunately, as I was saying before, they try to uh, take advantage of the feeling a lot of us can have, but especially people who can be prone to magical thinking, who maybe have some um, experiences in early childhood where they went into a magical thinking world or never really got to have that appropriate reality testing to realize that things don't just happen. There aren't these types of miracles where someone could just swoop in and save you and fix you or, you know, the problems you've been dealing with your whole life are going to come in and everything is going to change. And I don't like when I feel that groups like this, but not just this. Religions do it. Other groups do it too, or other practitioners or people selling you something give you this feeling that you're going to come there or I'm going to come into your life and everything gets better. And anytime we hear that as much as there can be a pull, we want to believe it because it would be so nice to think that something or someone or some treatment or some weekend is going to fix all our problems. We have to get away from that magical thought and that a fantasy land and come back to reality and realize, you know what, that's not how things work. Life is difficult. Life is challenging. We're always going to have challenges and the things we've been facing are things we're going to have to deal with maybe for our whole lives, but it's going to take hard work. And we have to own that and recognize that. So that's something that I think when we hear these ideas and these pitches of fix everything in a weekend, we should automatically be suspicious of that and for me, it always tells me they're trying to sell you something rather than give you something. That That's Doctor, the feeling again. Um, we do I have to wrap have, up the I, show. So I, I, if okay, you have just a final I, thought, last, you can go ahead. The last note, um, on the last note, I asked, uh, she asked me, Mom, would you do this for me? I said, yes, I will come to the program. I will go through this first session. So I felt that I, I gave in to this for him which is fine. I have no Well, problem. I'll say this, and I do have to wrap up. I would say, now that you've made the decision, it's your decision. So he, it's not because of him anymore. It's because of you. So you made the choice and go through it. And I hope, you know, have your experience with it 
and, and see what happens. I do have to, to wrap up the show, but thanks for your Thank call. Thank you. Sure. Thank you, Doctor. Sure. Have, have a great a day. Good. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you to all the callers and the listeners and to Rahman here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi. Have a wonderful day.